0: So far, we've seen the Antichrist armies gather at Megiddo in the north, then spread through the land, going south to Jerusalem and further south and east, to where the remnant are penned up in the sheepfold of Petra, in Edom in Jordan, a total distance of 200 miles. His people Israel are now all calling on Jesus to save them, as they face imminent destruction. This triggers his return. Jesus first returns to save the remnant at Petra, who are under siege. Micah 2.12 describes how he breaks the siege and leads them out. I'll surely assemble, he says, all of you, O Jacob. I'll surely gather the remnant of Israel. I'll put them together like sheep of the fold or, or the sheep of Bozrah. The one who breaks open, that's Christ, will come up before them. They'll break out, out of the sheepfold, pass through the gate and go out by them. Their king, Jesus, will pass before them with the Lord at their head. He now goes through the land like lightning, flashing from the east to the west. That's from Jordan to Israel. Destroying the enemy armies as he goes. As Jesus said, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass, that's Israel, is, there the vultures will be gathered together. That's Antichrist's armies swooping on the carcass. That's in Matthew 24, 7 and 8. Now, he starts to systematically destroy the armies of the Antichrist, treading them like grapes in his winepress as he marches from Bosra to Israel. This is graphically described in Isaiah 63, 1-6, to which shows him covered in blood, going forth to save his people and single-handedly destroying all his enemies. Then, having accomplished total victory, he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives in triumph. Zechariah 14.3 says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very large valley. He'll physically return in the same way as he ascended and to the very same place, just as was, was predicted in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 to 11. Zechariah 14 verse 6 and 7 says in that day there'll be no light the lights the sun moon stars will dwindle for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night but it will come about that at evening time there'll be light and in verse 9 it says the Lord will be king over all the earth. There'll be no natural light on that special day because of the blackout, so it won't be like day, but neither will it be night, as the earth will be lit by his glory. It'll be a unique day. Then at evening time he'll turn the lights on again. Jesus will then restore the earth after its destruction in the tribulation and re-sculpture Israel. Having created a valley through the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 adds in verse 8, In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the Eastern Sea and half to the Western Sea. This is the river flowing out of the Millennial Temple in Ezekiel 47, bringing the Dead Sea to life. In verse 10, he changes the whole region around Jerusalem into a plain, but he'll elevate Jerusalem by raising the ground until it becomes a high plateau-topped mountain with Jerusalem on top this mountain with Jerusalem and the temple on top will be the center of world government as Isaiah 2 verse 2 to 4 says in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord the temple will be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he'll judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The heart of the city will be the millennial temple, described in great detail in Ezekiel 40-48, to with the river flowing out of it and cascading down the mountain in magnificent waterfalls. There will be a 40-day interval during which Jesus sets everything in order in preparation for his messianic kingdom on earth. Various judgments, resurrections and appointments to positions of authority will take place at this time. First, the Antichrist and false prophet are resurrected and thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation nineteen twenty tells us the beast was seized from Hades, and with him the false prophet, and these two were thrown alive, that's in their resurrected bodies, into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They're fast tracked into the lake of fire, a thousand years before anyone else. Second, Satan is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. That's in Revelation twenty one to three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Isaiah twenty four twenty one and 22 says that all fallen angels and demons will also be thrown in the pit at this time. It says, it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And they'll be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and they'll be confined in prison. Verse 22 finishes by saying, and after many days they'll be punished. So this is just a holding prison until the time of their final punishment in the lake of fire a thousand years later. So, in the millennium, Satan will not be active on the earth. There will be no demonic deception or spiritual interference. Isaiah twenty-five seven says that he will swallow up the covering of darkness which is over all peoples, even the veil of, of deception which is stretched over all nations. The Lord will remove it. Third, the tribulation martyrs are resurrected at this time. That's in Revelation 24. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Now this must be the church who've already been resurrected and enthroned. And now it shows a different group being resurrected. I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who hadn't worshipped the beast or his image and hadn't received the mark on their forehead or hand. And they came to life, they're resurrected, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Notice these tribulation martyrs are resurrected as a separate group from the church after the second coming. Now if a post-trib rapture was true, these would already have been raised with the church at the second coming, meeting the Lord on his way down next the old testament saints are also resurrected at this time isaiah twenty six nineteen describes this resurrection your dead will live their corpses will rise you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy for your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits and the context of this is the second coming a literal rendering of daniel twelve two also describes what happens at the second coming Many shall awake out from among the sleepers in the earth's dust. These who awake shall arise unto life everlasting, but the rest shall rise, later, unto shame and everlasting contempt. In verse 13, God assured Daniel of his resurrection at this time. And as for you, go your way to the end, and then you'll enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. The Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs will face a similar judgment as the church did before the judgment seat, where they'll receive rewards including positions of authority in the millennium. For example, the twelve apostles will rule over the twelve tribes. The Bible says that all men will be resurrected, but not all at the same time. The Bible speaks of two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous to eternal life, and the resurrection of the wicked to eternal condemnation. John five twenty eight Jesus said, All in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Acts twenty four fifteen says, They there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Revelation twenty reveals that these two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. We've seen all believers are resurrected before the thousand years, which completed the first resurrection, the resurrection of believers. But the rest, the unbelievers, will only be resurrected after the thousand years. That's exactly what Revelation 25 and 6 tells us. The rest of the dead, the unbelievers, didn't come to life till the thousand years were completed. This is, or this completes, the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, over these, the second death, that's the lake of fire, has no power. But they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. God's resurrection program is summarized in 1 Corinthians 15:20 onwards. Verse 20 says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Verse 22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, But each in his own order. Now this word order means a troop or company. The picture is a military procession where men are divided into different troops. So God will resurrect men one troop at a time. First, Christ, the firstfruits, he says. This includes those raised at the same time as Christ. Then, he says, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And this is the rest of the believers at the rapture and the second coming. Then in verse 24 he says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so the end refers to the end of time, the end of the messianic kingdom, when all the unbelievers are raised in the second resurrection, and then death will now be completely defeated, because now everyone will have been raised. A more detailed summary of the first resurrection is, first Christ, the first fruits, and those raised at the same time. As Matthew 27.52 records, the tombs were opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Then two, the church at the pre-trib rapture. Then third, the two witnesses and the 144,000 at mid-tribulation. Then fourth, the Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs at the second coming. The second resurrection consists uh, first of the Antichrist and false prophet who are actually resurrected as a special case at the second coming. Then secondly the rest of the unbelievers are kept in Hades until their resurrection at the end of the thousand years. In this period of time just after Jesus's second coming there'll also be a judgment of those who are still alive at the end of the tribulation. We've already seen that the whole tribulation will be a time of judgment especially for Israel but by its end all Israel will be saved so there's no further judgment for Israel at the second coming Jesus will regather her from the four corners of the earth so she can possess the land in the kingdom however there will be a judgment of the Gentiles where Jesus will separate the believers from unbelievers the very nature of the events of the tribulation means everyone will have been forced to make a decision for or against Christ The believers will inherit the kingdom while the unbelievers will go into everlasting fire. This is revealed in the parables of the wheat and tares and the good and the bad fish in Matthew 13. Also the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25. And John the Baptist talked about it in Matthew 3.12. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Earth And gather his wheat into the barn, that's the believers, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Joel 3 verse 2 and 12 says that God will gather all Gentile nations to Jerusalem for this judgment, to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And the key issue will be their treatment of Israel and the Jews. The most detailed description is the judgment of sheep and goats in Matthew 25. All Gentiles go to Jerusalem to stand before Jesus, who sits on his own throne, not his father's throne. His own throne is the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now three groups are present. First, Israel, whom Jesus calls these my brethren. Secondly, the sheep Gentiles. And thirdly, the goat Gentiles. In the face of the great persecution of the Jews by Antichrist, the sheep showed their faith by blessing Christ's brethren, whereas the goats showed their submission to Antichrist by not helping them. The sheep enter the kingdom and repopulate the earth for the millennium. The goats, on the other hand, are killed and sent to everlasting punishment. That's in verse 46. Next, Jesus establishes his messianic kingdom, where he's physically present on earth and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Therefore, it's called the Day of the Lord. So, there's a short day of the Lord, the tribulation, and a long day of the Lord, the millennium. The Old Testament is full of prophecies of a future golden age, where Messiah rules the earth, and conditions of righteousness, peace, and prosperity prevail, with no warfare. The kingdom of God is manifested in a far greater way than in previous ages, including the church age. Nevertheless, sin, curse and death are still present, so it's not yet the eternal state. Christ will reign from Jerusalem as king over all the kings of the earth. He will rule with a rod of iron. It will be a perfect government, a divine dictatorship by a perfect person, a theocracy. No more democracy. Every year the nations will be required to show their submission by representatives going up to worship the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles, according to Zechariah 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God and his manifested glory, but it will be strongest over the chief nation Israel and strongest ever over Jerusalem. Now that the second Adam has taken over dominion of the earth, he restores the earth to what it was like before the first Adam sinned. It'll be a perfect environment. The curse will be removed from the animal kingdom, so the animals will be submissive. The lion will lie down with the lamb rather than eat it. Everyone will be vegetarian. All sickness will be removed. We see that in Isaiah 35. The miracles, you see, Jesus did were signs of the kingdom, showing what he could and would do on a universal scale when accepted and installed as king. Lifespans will be extended even to a thousand years, as it was originally. Isaiah sixty-five twenty says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who doesn't live out his days. For the youth will die at a hundred. In other words, anyone that's a hundred is considered a youth. And the one who doesn't reach a hundred will be accursed. In other words, it's because he's removed by capital punishment. The millennium is the time when God's unconditional everlasting covenant to Abraham will be completely fulfilled. Israel will be a great nation in full and final possession of her land. Jesus will reign forever on David's throne as the son of David, thus fulfilling the Davidic covenant. The resurrected David will be the king prince of Israel with the twelve apostles over the twelve tribes. And the church will reign with Christ as his bride. Jeremiah's prophecy of God's new covenant with the nation of Israel will then be fulfilled, forming the spiritual basis for the kingdom, so that all its promises of spiritual and physical blessing will be fully manifested then. The new covenant was established by the blood of Jesus, but Israel initially rejected it but God designed it so that all believers in Christ could enter into it now. Therefore, through the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 2.5 tells us that we are now experiencing the powers of the age to come, the age to come being the millennium. The millennium starts with believers only, but there'll be a population explosion, as there's no death and abundant provision. More will live in the millennium than the rest of history put together. These children will be born with a sin nature, though, so they'll still need salvation through the gospel. One problem is, with the removal of death, it's harder for them to see their need of salvation, which is why Ezekiel describes the restoration of animal sacrifices. But just like sacrifices before the cross, these don't save, but they're visual aids and teaching tools pointing back to Christ's sacrifice. The sacrifice shows that the wages of sin is death. And uh, and the only remedy is through the shedding of innocent blood, pointing to the blood of Christ. Now, even though Jesus is reigning in glory, there'll be an unsaved minority who reject Christ, although they have to outwardly obey his laws. Revelation twenty seven to 9 says that after the thousand years, Satan's allowed to flush out these rebels. He's released from prison and gathers the unsaved in a final great rebellion attacking Jerusalem. Even if it's many millions, it's still a small percentage of the total earth population. And then fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Why is Satan released? When Adam submitted to Satan and sinned, he gave Satan the legal right to try and tempt each man born in Adam away from God, thus testing his loyalty to God. Ultimately, every man has to make a decision between God or Satan, between heaven or hell. Now, until now, Satan didn't have access to those who who were born in the millennium. So now he's allowed to test them. Now, after this failed rebellion, Satan now is released into his final eternal punishment. That's in Revelation 20.10. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. After this comes the destruction of this present heaven and earth. Now, some say that this heaven and earth will endure forever, and so it will just be purified by fire at this point, not absolutely destroyed. But Revelation 20.11 says plainly that they pass out of existence. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, that's Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This is confirmed in Revelation 21.1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Jesus said in Matthew 24.35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Next, we come to the resurrection and final judgment of all unbelievers. This is the second resurrection unto the second death. Revelation 20:11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and that's Jesus. We saw that God has committed all judgment to Jesus. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then in verse 12, And I saw the dead the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now these are all unbelievers, for even though they've been resurrected, they are still called the dead, for they're spiritually dead. Their books are a detailed record of their lives. Now, they've already been found guilty, but the books are open to determine their degree of punishment. The Lamb's Book of Life, God's family album, is also opened to demonstrate that they've rejected God's offer of salvation through the blood of Christ. Then verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire and if anyone's name wasn't found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire the lake of fire is the final state and eternal destiny of the lost it's called the second death the first death is the separation of the spirit from the body the second death is far worse It's the eternal separation of man from the goodness of god the lake of fire is a place of everlasting conscious punishment in matthew twenty four forty six The same word everlasting is used for the everlasting punishment of the wicked as for the everlasting life of believers. Jesus often warned of it, using the Greek word Gehenna, after the Hebrew word for the valley of Hinnom, which was the southern valley of Jerusalem. And it was the rubbish dump for Jerusalem, with continual fires and rotting carcasses. There'll be no sinning in eternity, for every knee must bow, even Satan's, and every enemy is defeated. Therefore, everyone will be held at the pain level necessary to stop them sinning. And this relates to the different degrees of punishment. Whereas Hades was a place of punishment for the soul only, Gehenna is a place of punishment for both soul and body. And Jesus warned that God would destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And Jesus warned about this twofold punishment three times in his strongest warning about Gehenna in Mark nine forty-three to 50. It's blood curdling stuff. Verse 48 says, where their worm does not die. And the worm is the inner torment of regret and remorse eating away on the inside. And then he says, and their fire is not quenched. And this is the outward punishment of fire on their body. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, salt in those days was used to restrain corruption. And in the same way, the fires of hell will stop them sinning. Everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 50. Therefore, he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, one way or another, God will stop you sinning, either by his grace, his salt within you, or by his fire from outside you. So, receive God's grace within you to stop your sin, so he doesn't have to salt you with fire. Finally, the eternal state is described in Revelation 21 and 22. The last two chapters of the Bible. In this present universe, the issue of sin will have been manifested and dealt with forever. So the eternal state is total perfection, total righteousness, in which God's ultimate purpose is fulfilled. God and man united forever in the glory of God. Revelation 21.1 reads, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. Verse 9 says, Come and I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, remember, a city is not primarily its buildings, but its people. And all the redeemed together form the bride, and they dwell in the city. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no further need for temple buildings, for these are all types of God's ultimate temple, which is now complete and perfect in the eternal state. Now, a temple has two essential elements. First, the temple itself, and second, the God whose presence and glory indwells it. Revelation twenty one twenty three says the city had no need of the sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it the Lamb is its light Now, a temple is meant to be a light, for it's designed to radiate the light of God's presence and glory. So, having identified us as the eternal temple of God, in verse 22, we're now told this temple of redeemed humanity is also the light for the city. Thus, the city is lit by the glory of God shining out of his temple. And that temple is Christ and all of us who are in Christ. This is confirmed in verse 24 to 26, saying, The nations that's us, of those who are saved, shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. The saved in Christ are kings, and they will shine like the stars. Thus each saint brings their own glory into the city, and that glory is shining out of them and contributing to the total light of the city. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. Now gates are shut at night, so this signifies that there will be no night there, it will be eternal day. And they, that's the kings of the earth, shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. Revelation 22, verse 3 to 5 summarises what it will be like for all eternity. There'll be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And, first, his servants shall serve him, will be serving God for all eternity. Second, they'll see his face. In other words, we'll know him in face-to-face fellowship. And third, his name will be on their foreheads, which means we'll belong totally to God and we'll be like him, we'll have his nature. And there'll be no night there, no darkness, and they need no lamp or light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. And finally... It says, they shall reign forever and ever. So let's make sure we help as many people as possible to enjoy this amazing eternal future rather than the terrifying eternal punishment of fire.